Good morning, church. It's good to see you. I'm uh, a little laid up right now. I do I do appreciate all of you that have been praying for me. Uh, I like most men. I'm I'm a pretty big baby, and pain pain's not my favorite thing in life. And this is this has been pretty rough. But I like I said, I appreciate your prayers, and uh, I appreciate the the therapy folks at Solomon County Community Hospital because when they are causing you intense pain. They smile. They look you in the eye and smile. And I, I, I appreciate that. I, you know, like I said, all those folks up there, uh, Sue Shagnon's the one uh, that's been assigned to me and is trying to get me to feel better. And uh, I know, as you know, Amy and uh, Trudy and uh, Joe and Aaron. I, I just, I just wanted to thank and, and just how blessed we are to, to have those folks uh, in our community. What goes around comes around is, is the title of this message. It, uh, I prepared this message a few weeks ago, and it, it amazes me how the Holy Spirit knows what's going to happen and how he takes uh, the Word of God and, and, and inserts it through the likes of, uh, of somebody like me. And I, uh, it's just amazing. Poetic justice is the term introduced into England by Thomas Reimer in 1678, denoting the reward of the virtuous and the punishment of the vicious, that all characters reap the harvest of their just deserts. And how often do we we say that? You know, I, I hope these hope these people get what they deserve. And boy, is that in the news today with this whole murder of, of George Floyd and the things that has happened and the unrest and the protests and the anger that has come out over that. What are they demanding? Justice. You know, as Christians, we believe that uh, the ultimate poetic justice will be made it out at the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.10. It's when everything will come to light and people will get, as far as believers, we'll get what we deserve, but then following that is the great white throne judgment when everybody stands before God and God tells them the harsh words depart from me. I didn't know you that it's a, it's a sad state of events, but that's kind of where it's at. But here's the deal until that time we must live with injustice and the silence of heaven's gavel. And we see these things happening and we look around and we, where's God? We're, Where's he in all this? What's his take on it? Job is a perfect example of someone who not only lived with injustice, but wrestled with it. Though godly in heart and righteous in life, Job was seemingly the object of supernatural cruelty. Like a large cat who has a tiny wounded mouse, Satan played havoc with Job, leaving him homeless and helpless and hurting. But the presence of pain was not the hardest part of Job's trial. Instead, it was the absence of God, the silence of God, the sensing that God God wasn't there by his side. There was no voice from heaven, only silence. It was as God had turned his back on his faithful friend, refusing to look as Job suffered. You ever been there? Maybe you're there today. There are times in our spiritual lives when God is silent and seemingly absent. In some cases, that 
can be God's way of trying to get our attention, bringing us back to Him to a degree. Or it could be our attention to remind us of certain sins in our lives that, are, that we need to take care of, actually, that we're blind to. But in others, the reason is not clear, and the experiences of His silence can be disoriented and painful. In a grief, observe C.S. Lewis tells us about this experience that he had when he was suffering tremendous, profound grief, grief over the loss of his wife, Joy. And I quote, Lewis says, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? The door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and the doublet bolt on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean, Lewis writes? Why is he so present, a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent? I help in time of trouble, end of quote. This is what happened to Job. His experience must have been like swimming in a large lake at dusk. It's clear when you swim out, you think you'll swim out a little bit, and while you're in the water, a thick fog rolls in. Within seconds, you can see nothing. No horizon, no landmarks, no lights along the shore. You lose all sense of direction. You panic and you start swimming in one direction and then the other one. And then you turn to swim in another and another. And finally, with your heart pounding, you realize that the only thing to do is to tread water and wait for a voice from the shore for orientation. Undoubtedly, Esther and Mordecai both found themselves enveloped in a fog that muffled the voice of God. All who have suffered the silence of God amidst the present of injustice can understand their disoriented feelings. The fog is bad enough, but the silence from the shore is unbearable. Although God is just, he is just in his own time. And in between the ticks of his pocket watch are gaps of silence, sometimes inexplicably, inexplicable silence. Let's look at the understanding of God's timing in our day. So I think for us to even try to understand the enigma of God's silence, we have to understand the difference between our time and God's, between earthly standard time and heavenly mountain time. Our time is this. And part of our reconciling or trying to reconcile these time zones is understanding that here on earth we are prisoners in a cage called time. God exists outside the large, unfettered by the constrictions that we must live with day in and day out. God's outside of that. For us, time is objectively measured. 
for the day. We look at our iPhones or, or watches. For the week, we turn to our schedules. For the year, we consult our calendars. Everything we measure is from that present moment. This is our constant orientation. Secondly, for us, time is consciously accountable. Events are seen. They're visible. We can even capture them on video. The objects involved are tangible. We can touch them. We can feel them. And people are present witnessing what's said and what done. what's done. For us, thirdly, time is rarely ignored. We, we almost become slaves and prisoners to it to a degree. Only when we sleep or daydream do we escape from time. Yet even then we cannot escape entirely. Our jaunt is only mental. Physically, we're still captive. None of us, none of the above is true about God. Even though we are trapped in this ever-present time, now God is free from the trammels of time completely. Here's God's time. It's not bound by iPhones and wall calendars. His time is infinitely measured. And because he transcends time itself, his time is absolutely intangible. We see history as a sequence of still frames viewed one after another. It was like a motion picture field. But God sees the entire movie at once. All we see is the here and the now. We can go in the past and we can think about the future, but we don't, we don't, know, we don't know what that's like. God does. He knows from beginning to end. That is why he can remain silent and act one of the drama of our lives, because he knows what our final act, how it will turn out. And the author of this epic drama called Life, he knows that ultimately justice and truth and mercy and win will win out, but good will triumph over evil, and that loose ends will be tied up in his grand denouement. Oh boy, how we long for that sometimes, and how we wish that he, he would tell us. I have a favorite author by the name of Philip Yancey, amazing writer. I got to meet him one time at a conference, and after I got home from that conference, I, I thought, he said you could email him, and one of those guys you don't know, but he emailed me back, and I'll, me back, and I'll always appreciate this. This is Yancey's call on this issue of time and God's time in our lives, and I quote, No matter how we rationalize, God will sometimes seem unfair from the perspective of a person trapped in time. Only at the end of time, after we have attained God's level of viewing, after every evil has been punished or forgiven, every illness healed, and the entire universe restored, only then will fairness reign. Then we will understand what role is played by evil and by the fall and by natural law in an unfair event like the death of a child. Until then, we will not know and can only trust in a God who does know. We remain ignorant of many details, not because God enjoys keeping us in the dark, but because we have not the faculties to absorb so much light. It's like the saying we say from a few good men all the time, you can't handle the truth, and I, I, I think God spares us from that. At a single glance, God knows what the world is about and how history will end. But we time-bound creatures have only the most primitive manner of understanding. We can let time pass, not until history has run its course 
will we understand how all things work together for good. Faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. End of quote. Discovering God's timing in Esther's day, the context of our story. You know, some people that's been believers for a while that know this old hymn like to sing it. In his time, in his time, he makes all things beautiful in his time. Lord, please show me every day as you're teaching me your way that you do just what you say in your time. Yet the words are harder to sing without divine accompaniment. When there are no notes from heaven to cue us and keep us on key, it's difficult to sing that song. Sure, we can lipstick the lyrics, but the tune is really not in our hearts at all. Now, in our story, we see a sustained period of silence. How difficult it must have been for Esther and Mordecai to sing those stanzas a cappello. Think about this chain of events. When the king promoted Haman, God stayed silent, Esther 3.1. When Haman plotted to destroy the Jews, God stayed silent, chapter 3, verse 6. When the king made an agreement with Haman, God stayed silent, three, chapter 3, 9 through 11. When Mordecai pleaded with the queen to intervene, God stayed silent, chapter 4. When Haman ordered the gallows built for Mordecai, God stayed silent in 5.14. The silence of God is deafening in the book of Esther. It's almost like it is up until the point in Job where he finally speaks to Job and God, he hears God's voice. This doesn't happen here. But there are other places in Scripture where you strain to hear <laughs> a word from heaven and hear none. Think of the 400 years of silence that yawn between the books of Genesis and Exodus. 400 years. The time of Samuel's birth when word from the Lord was rare and visions were infrequent for Samuel 3.11 or 3.1. The frustrating silence that Habakkuk had to endure, Habakkuk 1, 2 through 4. The 400-year silence between the Testaments, bookended by Malachi and Matthew. The silence of heaven when Jesus hung on the cross in Mark 15, 34. There's a pattern here that God is trying to get us to learn for us to live by today. And maybe you've experienced a similar enigma. How can God be so silent when I cry out? To him so loudly and so desperately. Why doesn't he answer? Why doesn't he call out from the shore so I can orient myself in the fog that has enveloped me? If you find yourself treading water in that foggy lake, there's an important thing you need to remember. The periods of God's silence are just as significant as the times that he speaks. It's during these times in our lives that the ears of our faith become fine-tuned. And I'm sure you've heard it, maybe you've said it during this whole pandemic time. And now with this other calamity that is upon our country. Man, where are you at, God? I tell you where he's at. He's speaking <laughs> into his children. He's speaking into his church to rise up and be the church as we were, are supposed to be, to be Christ in that whole situation. I, I think strange things sometimes. And as I was watching uh, thousands upon thousands of protesters, can you imagine if they were all together to pray? What, what a difference that would make. 
That, that's not the case. But, it, you know, we humans, I think as Americans, are, are ultimately probably the most spoiled people on earth of, of the things that we have at our fingertips at our disposal. And unless you have surgery and you've got an arm taken away for a while, you just don't realize that. Or sleeping in a bed. I whine a lot because I'm a big baby, but, man, I miss sleeping in a bed. I have set up in a chair. I'm, I'm looking forward to that day. And when I go to bed at night, regularly I take that for granted. But I, I think we humans, we want God to do what we he expects you and I to do. I, I really do believe that. He has put responsibility in our lives. And sometimes we see God as a genie that we can rub a lamp and he will come out and do our bidding and give us everything that we want and we desire. But you and I have to understand when we sign on with Jesus, we get in the boat with Christ. He doesn't say take a seat in the back. He hands us an oar and says get, get with the program. It's a story I heard from a lady speaker in, in Finley, Ohio one time that one summer her and her group went to help Mother Teresa in, in India, in the slums of India. She said when she got there, the stench and the sights and the sounds and the suffering was so intense that it paralyzed her. Mother Teresa came up to her and handed a bucket in the rank and said, you need to get with the program. That's why you're here. you you got to shut this out for Christ. And, you know, I can go on and on, but I, I think you and I are like that sometimes. We want to shirk the responsibility that the Holy Spirit has given us, and we want God to do everything. Well, it don't work that way. And I think this is really brought out in this whole story of Esther and Mordecai of the responsibility that he put on them. Now we see in this chain of events in the book of Esther a, a subtle turn of events. In chapter 6 of Esther, we saw that a subtle but pivotal turn of events had taken place. The king couldn't sleep. So he had his servants bring out the historical records. Instead of curing his insomnia, the reed embraced him like a pot of espresso. The mention of Mordecai's heroism prompted the king to honor this unsung hero. But the irony of it all was that the king appointed Haman, Mordecai's sworn enemy, who hated Mordecai above any other human on earth, to honor him, to lead him through the city, to put on the royal robe, and make a big deal and proclaim what a hero and what great man that Mordecai was. Mordecai was humble, and we talked about that before. But when Haman returned home from this humiliating parade, he heard a different tune from his wife and friends that he had before that he left. It was as if one day Haman had come home to a festive dance while the next to a funeral dirge. Even God was working in his unbelieving wife and in his friends. It was the handwriting on the wall that God was allowing them to see. And as we stand back and observe this subtle turn of events, we sense that something more is brewing. Amidst, amidst that silence, we sense the deeper stirring of God's sovereignty. Change in plans takes place. Those events in chapter six, uh, 6 usher us into a second banquet in chapter 7. This is the third 
time the king has asked Esther about her petition. Between the time of the first banquet and this one, God inserted his important parentheses. He revealed to the king how Mordecai had saved his life, which prompted the king to honor this loyal and courageous man. So the delay of the banquet, second banquet, was deliberate both on Esther's part and on God's. God wasn't late, nor was he negligent. He was synchronizing the events of his sovereign plan to come together at just the right time for optimal effect. In delaying his request until the second banquet, Esther was sensitive to God's timing. She was careful not to rush in, but to take everything in God's time. You know, I was talking about, excuse me, the period between the Old and the New Testament, between Malachi and Matthew. There's a phrase in there in Matthew, and it says, in the fullness of time. That's the difference between God's time and our time. His time is perfect and ours is not. And this is why Esther found out. At the table, Esther finally voiced her petition as she speaks. Haman sets up in a paralyzed silence, the echo of his wife's words still ringing in his ears. And what his wife said, he says, Mordecai the Jew, you're not going to be able to defeat him in a roundabout way is what she's saying. So starting in verse 7, verse 3 or chapter 7, verse 3 through 6. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition, and my people as my request, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he who would presume to do this thus? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. So the drama has come to this climax that she's pointed out the villain. And that's Steve Collier. He's a dirty, rotten scoundrel. Surprising climax. When Esther said his name, Haman probably dropped his goblet. Even if he was in a drink, during a drink, it probably made him choke. In verses 7 through 10, the, dramatic, the drama reaches its climax in a gripping scene of ultimate poetic justice. You remember the title of the message, What Goes Around Comes Around. And the king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace gardens. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was then, where Esther was. Then the king said, Will you even insult the queen with me in, my, in the house? And as the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbonah, one of the eunuchs who was before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gavel standing in Haman's house, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. 
So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. So for Haman, what goes around comes around. Poetic justice had been, had been served. And we ask, what's our application today? You and I need to be very sensitive to God's interventions every day. So if you find yourself thrashing about in a leg covered with fog or maybe just dog paddling with your head just barely above the water line, here are a few things to remember. Number one, the fog on your lake is neither accidental nor fatal. Be careful not to make so much noise trying to keep afloat that you can't hear the voice on the shore. While swimming, listen for his voice. It will come to us in various ways as long as you're open to it, intent on hearing it, sensitive to the call of the Holy Spirit in your life for that sound. It is the voice of God piercing the fog that gives you the assurance that your circumstances are neither accidental or fatal. And your God is in this, and you're saying, God, in all of this, what, what do you want me to learn? A lot of times we're too big of babies, and we whine and we cry all the time instead of just settling down and listening to what God has to teach us. Number two, the workings of our God are related to our cries, but unrelated to our clocks. While waiting, look beyond the present. You'll be amazed how it will help you bear the pain. Because you know it's going to get better. With me, this arm's going to get better. Number three, surprises in store are not merely ironic or coincidental. They are sovereignly designed. So as while we anticipate them, trust God for justice. That justice will be served. Guard against the, the temptation to question the integrity of the judge or to impugn his motives. Constantly crying out to God. Why? Lord, why, why, why? You know what? One of my greatest heroes in the preaching world is Charles Swindoll. And he said one day, he said, I've been, I've been preaching 60 years. And in that 60 years, God has only told me why one time. I, I think it goes back to what we said earlier. I, I don't think sometimes we could handle the truth if we knew what was coming. So we go through life with faith in God, and as we build that faith, and as you and I build that relationship with Christ, when these crises come, when calamity comes, we don't fall apart. We fall into God's arm. Yeah, we're crushed. Our hearts are broken, but we're not destroyed. We become stronger through it. In his excellent book, Waiting, Finding Hope, When God Speaks Silent, When God Seems Silent, Ben Patterson concludes with these words, we need to take time to meditate on them today. The prayer that wrestles with the living God has the faith to believe in the end that even the apparent silence of God is the silence of his higher thoughts and that his no is spoken that he might give us a more resounding yes. There's a poem which speaks to this wonderfully. It was written by a young soldier who received massive and permanent debility dehabilitating de injuries in the Civil War. He lived as a cripple the rest of his days, wrestling and waiting for God to show his face, his purpose in it all. And at the end of his struggles, he wrote this, I asked for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. 
I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was giving poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given meekness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for things that I, I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I have received nothing I asked for. All that I hoped for, my prayers answered. End of quote. That's something to meditate on and contemplate, isn't it? What we ask for, God gives it to us, but it's what's best for us, and sometimes it's not specifically what we had on our list. Such sentiments can be expressed not at the beginning of our struggle with God, but only at the end. It's a precious intimacy with the heart of God that can see through all of our disappointments. The tender and loving hand of God is at work for our good always. The intimacy comes after spending years with Him in a dialogue that's almost continuous. It's sometimes quiet and peaceful. Sometimes it's wrenching and devastating. But through it all, it's the same loving God. You know, I, I've said this a lot of times. We get upset with God, mostly because He doesn't do things the way we want or things don't come out like we want. But it's okay to be mad at God. I'm sure you have a best friend that sometimes you get upset with. And you speak your mind. You release that. I think that's good with us, with God. You can shake your fist at God and scream and holler and you get it out of your system. He understands that. The fact is, as I told a lot of people as well, you can't stay upset with God. There has to be that time where you, you, you come to grips with the events in your life and you have enough faith that you trust in Him that He is doing the right thing. But through it all, there's, it's the same love in God no matter how we feel Him to be at the moment, adversary or advocate, mother or father, friend or enemy. And through it all, He is at work for our good and His victory over us will be also His victory in us when the wrestling is over. And I think about Paul down at the end when they was getting ready to behead him in Rome. He said, well, I've fought a good fight. I've finished the course. You know, I think sometimes in our lives that uh, maybe we feel like that. I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you're on that foggy lake, but uh, stop. Listen, listen to the voice of God, and uh, He's there, and He has your best entrance at heart. Thanks, God, for Your Word. Thank You the way that it speaks into our lives, and the things that happen to us, we embrace them. We try to understand them. We do not let them crush us, but it gives us hope and it builds our faith in you that regardless of what's going on in our world as we see today, unrest, riots, protests, brutality, people dying on a daily basis still from this pandemic, it should cause us to be on our knees 
should be drawing us closer to you, God. So right now I just pray for these fine folks that I love. I just pray that you bless them. I pray that you touch them. We give you praise and glory for we all, we ask it all in the name of Christ. Amen. God bless you guys.